Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 16A, an interview on Lincoln and Emancipation and Reconstruction with Lewis Major. I'm really excited to welcome uh, Lewis to the show today. Lewis is a distinguished professor of American studies and history at Rutgers University and author of numerous books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including most recently, Lincoln's Hundred Days, The Emancipation Proclamation, and The War for the Union. If you listened to my last episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, you hopefully know that Lincoln abolished slavery. But you also now know that this wasn't easy. The road to emancipation was a tightrope act for Lincoln, with his desire to restrict and later abolish slavery on one side, and his desire to reconcile and later reconstruct the South on the other. It's a tug of war that I didn't have much time to get into in my episode on Lincoln, and frankly, one I really look forward to learning more about today. So that's where our focus is going to be. And I'd love to start, Lewis, by confirming my preposition here. Am I right in saying that these two goals are in direct opposition to each other? You, you can't reconcile slave states while containing or ending slavery, and you can't contain or end slavery while reconciling the slave states, especially those border states that are kind of on the edge of if they stay or if they go? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And we can talk for a very, very long time on the subject of Lincoln and emancipation, of, of course. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you said that Lincoln freed the slaves, because even that in and of itself is uh, oftentimes debated, right? The Emancipation Proclamation did not free all of the slaves. It only freed those slaves uh, in Confederate territory, not under Union control. And of course, it would take the 13th Amendment, finally, to abolish slavery completely. And Lincoln was zealous about making sure that got passed. But to get to your question, yeah, the fundamental paradox of, of slavery and, and democracy, if you will, uh, was becoming increasingly difficult to reconcile. But keep in mind that the beginning of the war, the war does not begin as a war to abolish slavery. The war begins as a war to preserve the Union. And uh, Lincoln continued to reassure Southerners that they had nothing to fear with respect to the slaves. Uh, the federal government had no power over slavery where it existed. Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln had no intentions to try and do anything about it. So this notion of, of reconciling, sure, I mean, there was a possibility. I mean, had, had the Confederate states decided, okay, never mind, uh, and taken reassurances that slavery would not be tampered with, they would have gotten those reassurances. The problem is they weren't content with just that. They were also eager to expand slavery into new territories, into new states. That's really uh, where the Civil War catches fire. It's, it's over the issue of the extension of slavery. Uh, on that, Lincoln was adamant that he would not allow that to occur. Uh, and Southerners continued to believe that, uh, that he had the abolition of slavery in mind from the very start. And that leads right into my next question. So thank you so much. And, and throughout this, we're going to kind of follow this thread through the war of, of balancing slavery and, and reconstructing the South, especially on the big moments where that tug of war goes one way or another in, in his mind. So as you mentioned, you know, when he becomes president, seven states have already seceded, but there's no fighting it. He had campaigned, as you mentioned, he promised to limit the expansion of slavery, but also not to touch it in the states where it already exists. So you have these eight border states, you know, and, and there's a question of will they stay in the Union or will they leave and go with the Confederacy? Does Lincoln have any opening 
outreach to them, any, any offers he makes to try and get them to stay in the union, to try and reconcile them with their fears of what he might do? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. And uh, there, there's not much that he was able to do by way of, of reassurances. You know, if you, if you read carefully the first inaugural, he attempts to conciliate, he attempts to reassure Southerners they have nothing to fear, but he also makes it clear that the issue of war is in their hands, not in his hands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and the assault upon Fort Sumter is the trigger that then leads four additional states to secede, making the Confederacy comprised of 11 states. And the four border states, by which we mean slave states that remain in the Union, uh, they remain in the Union for a variety of different reasons, uh, mainly military operations, the actions of governors, and various other forces that come into play, uh, Maryland and Delaware, uh, and most significantly, Missouri and Kentucky. And it's critical to understand that so much of the first two years of the war, year and a half of the war, so much of what Lincoln is thinking about are those four border states, because he knows that any action that may lead them to leave the Union and join the Confederacy might be absolutely catastrophic for the Union cause, especially Missouri and Kentucky, uh, in terms of the, the, the supplies that they can provide, the wealth of resources, the men. So many of his statements and many of his policies are all an attempt to conciliate those border states. That's why he refuses to be rushed on the issue of abolition. And, and he gets rushed pretty much right out the gate. Um, on August 30th, 1861, you know, a month after that first Battle Bull Run, John C. Fremont, the general in charge of the Western Department, issues an edict freeing all Confederate held slaves in Missouri. Um, Lincoln countermands the order and shuts them down. Can, can you get into why he, he does that? Sure, because Fremont had absolutely zero power or authority to, to issue such a proclamation uh, that uh, Missouri was still in the Union, that uh, the proclamation was completely uh, inappropriate for, for Fremont himself to take it upon himself to issue. Uh, and so uh, Lincoln compels it uh, to be retracted. But even before Fremont's order, you know, there, there's always a political spectrum. And so yes. on the left, you know, Lincoln is being pressed even before the summer of 61. You know, the abolitionists, the radical Republicans, they're all driving themselves nuts. Why is he so slow? What's taking him so long? I mean, Lincoln was anti-slavery. Let's not forget that. He yeah. was always anti-slavery. But there's a difference between being anti-slavery and being an abolitionist and believing that he had the power to act against slavery. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he refutes Fremont's proclamation. There are other actions by generals that he's going to refute, uh, but he's going to get to the point in the summer of 1862 where he is sick and tired of basically trying to conciliate those border states. Uh, he keeps going to these border state representatives with offers to you know, gradually emancipate the slaves. He's offering them money. He has plans for compensation, compensated emancipation, uh, various schemes of colonization, right? That's, we may talk mm -hmm. more about that, the idea that once Blacks are free, they can't live in the United States, therefore they should migrate elsewhere. Finally, he sees that he should stop worrying about Kentucky and Missouri. Uh, that, you know, at the beginning of the war, he said, uh, he, he's quoted as saying, it's not clear he actually said this, but it's a great quote. It captures how he's feeling. Uh, I, I'd love to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Yes. At a certain point, he realizes, you know what? 
forget Kentucky, forget Missouri. He has to work against the Confederacy, and he realizes that it's fool's gold hoping that those border slave states are going to take action on their own to free the slaves. And, and what's your take on what pushes him to change his mind there? Because, I mean, you mentioned from first summer to second summer, one summer, he's very much very concerned about this. He's countermanding generals. The next summer, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, that is a total 180. How Elaborate on that. He says at one point, the pressure in this direction is great. So where is the pressure coming from? It's coming from a variety of different places. Uh, we have to emphasize the importance of the enslaved themselves. This is a critical issue that in recent years, historians have come to appreciate. You know, this isn't just Lincoln standing above handing out emancipation, right? He, he, he's being compelled to act in part because the enslaved are taking advantage of the dislocations of war and they're running away. They're delivering themselves to union lines uh, and, and they have to develop policy. What are we going to do with these runaway slaves? Well. We can't really send them back to their masters because in a variety of ways, they're supporting the Confederate war effort, but we don't have a policy yet to sort of free them. So they decide they're going to confiscate them as contraband of war. And this notion of the contrabands becomes the euphemism, the phrase that is referred to runaway slaves who come into union lines. Uh, Congress is also acting independent and in, in concert with Lincoln. So they pass confiscation acts that allow for this kind of thing to take place. Um, there are other things uh, going on as well that, that are worthy of, of attention. Uh, diplomatic questions. I mean, there's real concern that Great Britain or France might enter the war on the side of the Confederacy. Uh, if that happens, game over. Uh, in the same way that the French entering on behalf of the revolutionaries, the Revolutionary War changed everything. To make the war into a war of abolition, is going to have a profound effect on perhaps keeping England and France from, from tampering too much with what's going on. So you have the enslaved running away, you have the actions of Congress, you have diplomatic concerns, and then you just have Lincoln's own evolution. As I said, he was always anti-slavery, but he increasingly comes to understand that the war can't just be a war to preserve the Union, that one of the ways in which to preserve the Union is to also make it a war to abolish slavery. So abolishing slavery is both a means and an end toward winning the war, if that, that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. I'm curious, though, about th those four border states. He was so concerned, so concerned. If he did this, they'd leave. And then they don't. Why, why did they stay? Is, it, is there some kind of evolution in the battleground that makes them say, why don't they flip? At that point, the Union has, you know, uh, has asserted military control over over those four states. Uh, you know, the, so so any uh, possibilities of, of the Confederacy uh, to take over armaments or to take over the government uh, has been has been fought back early in the war. So they don't have any choice uh, but to remain. But they're deeply, deeply divided states. I mean, the civil war within those states is as profound as anything else. You know, uh, you know, children fighting on both sides uh, from from Missouri and Kentucky. Uh, you know, and, and then there's additional sort of things taking place as well. You know, this is the moment at which West Virginia gets created. Right. <laughs> uh, they secede from Virginia, in effect, and on the way toward creating a new free state. So there's a lot of things going on with respect to 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 territory and with respect to. Uh, playing out these issues of, of slavery and freedom in the states. 
And, and you mentioned that between, you know, 1861 and 62, between countermanding officers, between Emancipation Proclamation, there's a lot of kind of baby steps and offers that happen, like um, the, the moving, the idea of moving the freedmen to Africa, the idea of buying freedom for the slaves in D.C. and the border states. How much of all that stuff is like sincere? This is where he is at that moment. And how much of that do you think is kind of political maneuvering setting the nation up for eventual emancipation? So it's a great question. The, the colonization aspect has a much longer history, right? So yeah. the, the American colonization side is actually founded back in 1817. And, you know, the capital of Liberia is Monrovia. It's named after right. uh, and, and Lincoln supports colonization up until a certain point. But in supporting it, he's not unlike many other Americans who don't know what to do about the problem of race in America. Uh, we, we still don't know what to do about questions of race. In America, right? And so, so there are four million enslaved persons, and uh, you could be against slavery, but worry about what's it going to be like once those four million people are freed. Well, a panacea uh, is the idea that well, we'll get them voluntarily to migrate to Liberia or to South America or to Central America um, because they can't live peaceably with whites. Lincoln accepts this, although he realizes that it's not feasible. Uh, and that, that it can never really happen. A famous speech in 1854, Peoria, he says that, you know, ideally uh, that's what he thinks should be done, but he goes on to acknowledge that it can't be done. Um, part of what happens is, and this is my love of Lincoln, and this is what I think <laughs> is ultimately Lincoln's greatness. Yeah. Is he changes his mind. You can watch him change his mind. His thinking evolves. Uh, he goes from... Uh, believing in colonization to rejecting the idea of colonization. Uh, and he takes even more radical steps. You know, a great example of this is the enlistment of black soldiers. Yeah. He says early on in the war that this is ridiculous. We're not going to put guns in the hands of the enslaved. Are you kidding me? They can't make good soldiers. Uh, he goes from that position to believing that the sight of, you know, 50,000 armed and trained black soldiers would end the war immediately. He also understands as Frederick Douglass did and encouraged Lincoln to believe that black men serving was critical to future claims to citizenship. Oh. You for your country, uh, therefore you have certain rights to citizenship. And we could talk about that a little bit later in terms of Lincoln's ultimate evolution of, of his life. So, so Lincoln is changing his mind. Now, this is where things get complicated. And this is why your listeners need to be sophisticated readers of texts, right? These things are, are, are being spread in context. So there's lots of stuff that Lincoln does. Uh, he, he, uh, there's a famous letter to Horace Greeley that appears in the newspapers where he says, you know, my goal is to save the union. If I could do it while freeing the slaves, I would. If I could do it without the slaves, I would. Uh, if I could do it without either, I would, right? So that gets quoted all the time to say, well, as you see, he doesn't really care about slavery. Uh, and then there's this really uncomfortable from our point of view, meeting with five black men uh, just prior to issuing the Emancipation Proclamation to encourage them to, uh, to go to Liberia. And if you read that uh, or, or the reports of it, I mean, Lincoln's comments are, many of them are, are, are sort of detestable. Uh, the question is how much of that did he really believe or how much of that was being put out there for public consumption? Right. Keep in mind, He's got Northern Democrats who are opposed to the war, who are opposed to abolishing slavery. He's in a delicate political cauldron. And so oftentimes what he does, what, what he's doing with his left hand, he's mitigating 
with his right hand. Uh, so you have to read the public statements in, in, in context. Uh, but it's important to note that he has that meeting. Uh, and then, of course, after the Battle of Antietam on September 22nd, he issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation saying in 100 days on January 1st, I'm going to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, those 100 days is the focus of my book that you were kind enough to mention, Lincoln's 100 Days. Yeah. It's, a, it's a study of that period. And, you know, it's so funny, right? There, there's been something like 12,000 books on Lincoln, and yet there's still always something new to research or to find or to say. And what tends not to get appreciated is that the final document that appears is different from the one he issued on September 22nd. The document itself changes. Uh, you may ask, <laughs> I will answer your question, how does it change? Well, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation suggested providing funds for colonization. That does not appear in the final proclamation. More significantly, it's the final Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, that authorizes the enlistment of black troops. Uh, that is absolutely pivotal, and it goes hand in hand with the idea of emancipation itself. So that document coming on January 1st, 1863 is clearly you know, one of the most pivotal documents in American history. You know, Frederick Douglass said that the Declaration of Independence and the Emancipation Proclamation were the two pole stars of American liberty. I, 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 you gave me so much great information there that I wasn't aware of. I'd love to dive a little deeper into it. What caused him to change? Was this just more continued evolution? Was did you think he always intended to eventually get where he was on January first in the final proclamation? No, I think he radicalizes, and he radicalizes out of a variety of different reasons. He he he, in part because the war is going terribly, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and and we can't ignore the significance of that. I mean, you know, in December he says, "If there's a worse place than hell, I am in it." I mean, the Union is not doing well, and and he realizes more than ever that emancipation is a necessary lever to change the war. Uh, you know, they had the off-term elections in right. November. 1862. Let's not forget those, right? He's elected in 1860. Uh, those elections are, are a rousing success for the opposition party. The Democrats gain seats in Congress. Uh, lots of people say to Lincoln, you see, the election was a referendum on the Emancipation Proclamation. He refuses to interpret it that way. He says, oh, it's a referendum on the fact that the war is going poorly. Uh, and he, I think, just you know, he was always, as I said, anti-slavery. He always believed uh, in, in certain principles of, of justice. And, and the thing about Lincoln is, is once he commits to something, he doesn't turn back. You know, he once famously said, the promise having been made, it must be kept uh, with respect to emancipation. Because people were saying to him, it's not too late. You could retract it. You could take it back. Uh, and, and he refused uh, to do that. Uh, so he, 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 takes things under advice. He gets uh, reports from various people, including the Solicitor General, about his war powers. Um, and that's important to keep in mind as well. Why, one of the reasons why Lincoln has to wait is because as president, he doesn't believe he has the power to free the slaves. So everyone says, well, then wait a minute. If he doesn't have the power to free the slaves, how does he do it? He does it as commander in chief. He does it as a military necessity. That's the phrase, right? That's the, that's the justification that for Lincoln made the actions constitutional. Otherwise, he had no power over slavery and he never acknowledged. 
this stuff gets really complicated, Kenny. And then I, <laughs> no, you're filling in so many gaps in the story in my mind, where I'm like, what, what about this? What about this? And you're just you're just filling in the picture. So thank you so much. <laughs> it's wheels within wheels within wheels. Right? Yeah. So so you have to understand that Lincoln never accepted the legality of secession. Yeah. Never accepted. He said it was an ingenious sophism. He said it was the essence of anarchy. He says there's no such thing as secession. Right. This is famous in his inaugural address. He says, if you're unhappy with the results of an election, there are three things you can do. You can wait four years and vote again. You can have a constitutional amendment to address the issue that over which you are grieving. Or uh, you can storm the Capitol and overthrow the government. What you can't do is leave. And because he held that belief, it means that he never acknowledged that the seceded states were actually gone, right? We refer to them as the so-called seceded states, right? They were rebels. You know, it's a rebellion. Let's not forget that. It's a rebellion. It's the war of the rebellion. That's the official title of the Civil War. It was an extra-legal, unconstitutional rebellion against democratically elected government. Now, the, the those- legal Jenga that was playing in his mind is just incredible, the way he argues this and, and so many other issues and how he navigates them. Yeah. I mean, he was a lawyer and, and, and he, um, he was very scrupulous about the logic of thinking through these things. So anyway, the upshot is uh, you can say you left, but I don't acknowledge that you left. Therefore, you're still entitled to all of your rights as a citizen of the United States, even though you're claiming you're not. That means you have a right to property to slaves. So how do you get around that? He has to get around that by the doctrine of military necessity by acting as commander in chief to free the slaves. And that's why the document does not free the slaves in the border states, right? The border states are in the union. And it does not free those states in areas under union control because there is no military necessity in those areas. But on paper, it frees about 3.4, 3.5 million out of the 4 million enslaved persons. It sends the signal to the enslaved that if they escape, if they run away, uh, they will have their freedom. And it turns the Union Army into an army of liberation. Which it will throughout the war. You, you mention the occupied areas that already exist. You know, he's already got some areas under his control. He doesn't free the slaves there. Let's start talking about reconstruction. You know, at what point does he start to think about how he's going to reconstruct the South, how he's going to bring states back in, and what he's going to do with these areas that he's already captured, such as of West Virginia, New Orleans, Tennessee? It's a great question, and here's the answer. He thinks about it from the very start of the war. So another of my Lincoln books is a book called Lincoln's Last Speech, Wartime Reconstruction. And that's what this is called, Wartime Reconstruction. He understands from the very start that he has to get these states back in as quickly as possible, and he sees that uh, as a means to ending the war. He appoints military governors uh, in, in those states under union control. Uh, most important, he issues his proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction uh, in, in early of 64, uh, late 63, early 64. Uh, so he's, he's articulating a plan by which a certain percentage of loyal citizens who take an oath of allegiance can form a government that can then vote on a constitution and be recognized. 
Uh, he's especially eager to see this happen in Louisiana. As you mentioned, New Orleans is under control. Uh, you know, it's happening in Tennessee, but Louisiana is really, really important because it's a deep South state. So the, the thinking about reconstruction is part and parcel of everything that's going on during the war. It's very, very hard to separate the two. You know, lots of people think Reconstruction applies only to the period of 1865 to 1877, or maybe 1863 to 1877. But the two are wrapped up in each other because Lincoln is desperate to get those states uh, to adopt new state constitutions and to be back in the union as quickly as possible. He has resistance from the radical Republicans. Right? He battles with them because it becomes a question. It's a political battle. Who's going to be in charge of Reconstruction? Is it president or is it Congress? And the radical Republicans in Congress say, not so fast, Mr. President. Uh, and they suggest their own plan for Reconstruction, the Wade Davis bill, which Lincoln then promptly vetoes uh, and explains why he's vetoing it. So through 1864 into uh, the end of the war, the arguments about Reconstruction are, are very uh, vibrant, and, and there's lots of debate and, and, and lots of discussion. Uh, part of this discussion goes back to the question is, what is the status of the seceded states? Uh, you know, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, the radical Republicans want to treat them as conquered provinces. They want to treat them as having committed state suicide, that they can just go in there and completely rearrange, rework, reorder, that there has to be a fundamental revolutionary transformation. Uh, this is not Lincoln's position, right? Lincoln's position is that basically they, they just need to restore themselves to small R Republican government uh, and um, hold dual elections and then they could be readmitted back into the union. That's going to be the set of issues, of course, that's going to uh, define the era of Reconstruction after Lincoln's assassination uh, and, and, and Johnson goes to war with the radical Republicans. So the question becomes, you know, just what are the conditions? What are the terms under which Southern states are going to be readmitted to the Union? How does slavery and abolition fit into those early thoughts? You know, you talk about how he's looking, there's reasons he wants to get these states back in, especially the symbolism of New Orleans, military governors. How's he treating slavery and abolition in those states? Well, by this point, right, the Emancipation Proclamation has been passed, and he knows that the enslaved are going to be freed. The question isn't so much now slavery, it's the transition to freedom. This is the great question of the 19th century. Uh, we could argue it's the great question well beyond the 19th century. Yeah. So you have 4 million enslaved persons, but what's freedom going to look like? Uh, are they going to be given land? Are they going to be given the implements to farm their farmers? Are their former slave masters going to hire them and pay them wages? Uh, certainly, this is what's hoped for. But please, uh, are are they going to the are the freedmen going to remain on those plantations, or do they want to experience their freedom and go elsewhere? Uh, education, what is that going to look like? Are there going to be any kind of civil rights? How are we going to protect them against? The, uh, the, the Southern Democrats who refuse to acknowledge that the war has been lost and who refuse to acknowledge that these uh, 4 million persons are, are now free. Those are the terms of, of Reconstruction. Uh, Lincoln, before he's assassinated, certainly has some ideas about this, right? He, he, Congress passes and he signs the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau is created in 1865 uh, in order to do this, in order to help the enslaved make the transition 
from slavery to freedom, uh, to, to, to provide supplies, to help them with negotiating contracts, to, to place them on abandoned lands and things along those lines. So all of this is very much up in the air and all of it is very much up for, up for discussion. And so he's thinking, how are we going to reconstruct this stuff? Thoughts on that are evolving. In late 1863, I think it is, he, he puts forth one of his first plans that he really gets behind, uh, the 10% plan. Right. Uh, would you mind describing what that is? And yeah, I alluded to it before. It's in his proclamation of amnesty reconstruction. It's very easy. He's just saying when, when 10% of those who had voted in the election of 1860 have taken an oath of allegiance to the Union vote, uh, they can then now begin the process of, uh, of, of adopting a state constitution and applying for readmission to the union. Which sounds like a very low bar. What's his thought thinking behind it? Uh, he believed that there were many more Southern unionists in the South than perhaps there were. This is one of the great sort of debates um, among, among historians even, all right? Did he exaggerate the degree of Southern unionism? Uh, but the, the, the radical Republicans put that, I think at what, 40% or 50%. Uh, but, but, the plans aren't really that much different, right? The, the, the point is to get Southerners to take an oath of allegiance and to vote and to begin the process of crafting a state constitution that abolishes slavery, right? And, and apply for readmission to the union and then elect representatives who will take their seats. Uh, Louisiana does this uh, and they elect representatives. The problem is the radical Republicans refuse to seat them. So this is part of the battle that's going on uh, during the war with respect to getting the states back in uh, during the war. Of course, once the war is over, uh, then, then the battle turns to between Andrew Johnson uh, and, and the radical Republicans, because you know, Johnson just wants to let them all back in by December of 1865 and say that the work of reconstruction is done. And uh, the radical Republicans saying not so fast, right? That there's gotta be, there's gotta be more, uh, more done here in order to, uh, to restore them to, to statehood. And that's where we end up getting the 14th and 15th amendments, right? The passage, the ratification of those amendments become conditional for readmission back into the union. And, and it doesn't Lincoln's plan end up being a big part of that fight? Isn't Andrew Johnson often pointing to like, hey, like 10%, they're back in. That's what Lincoln said. That's what I want to do. And the radical Republicans want more? Yeah, it's not so much that Johnson is, is referring back to, to Lincoln. I mean, Johnson just thinks that... Um, that the terms of readmission should be as 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 mild uh, as possible, right? All Andrew Johnson wants to do is is have the planter elites bow before him uh, and and beg <laughs> the ring. Uh, you know, he he had no sympathy for blacks. He had right. no sympathy for the radical Republicans. Right. Uh, he's eager for Southern Democrats to regain political power. You know, it's one of the tragedies of Reconstruction, right? How quickly Southern Democrats regain political power in those. Uh, this is why if we rewind a little bit uh, to, to, you know, I mean, Lincoln's second inaugural, right? So, so Lincoln, you know, Mao is toward non-charity for all. I mean, Lincoln had a sense of forgiveness, a sense of leniency, a sense of, you know, he wanted there to be justice, but he, he wasn't willing to be retributive toward the South. Right. Uh, incredibly sort of forgiving. You know, in the, the, the second inaugural quotes the New Testament, right? Judge not that we not be judged. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of spirit of comedy uh, drove the radical Republicans, of course, absolutely crazy because they thought that, well, that, that 
the southern states should be stripped of of of, of everything. Should they should fundamentally, you know, reconstructed as opposed to restored? Right. There's a big difference between between the meaning of those words. Uh, you know, one 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 of the amazing things about Lincoln is in his final speech, uh, and and this time of year, you know, he gave it on April 11th. Of course, April 14th is when. Uh, he was shot and he dies on April 15th. But um, his last speech, his final speech, uh, amazing um, moment. Um, Appomattox has happened. Uh, the war is over. Lincoln stands before a crowd. Uh, and one of the things he does in that speech is he supports giving Black men who fought in the army right. and who are educated the right to vote. I want all your listeners to pause for a minute and think about that. Right? We're living in a moment right now, 2022, where questions of suffrage and the right to vote are being contested. Think about 1865. Think about this man who in 1854 said, I do not believe in the political and social equality of Blacks. 11 years later is recommending giving Black men the vote. Now, I'm not naive. There's a certain amount of political expediency to this. Sure. Guess which political party these men are going to vote for. Right. Uh, they're going to vote overwhelmingly for the Republican And you're party. about to let the South back in and <laughs> you're going to need some votes down there. Exactly. And it comes back to this word democracy because that's what it, that, that's what it was for Lincoln. That, that was everything for Lincoln. Yes, the union. Yes, abolition. But most of all, democracy government of the people, by the people, for the people. I mean, that's what galled him. What galled him is in response to his election, 11 states seceded. Uh, and in fact, in 1864, when he ran for re-election, there were people who said to him, what are you, crazy? You know, forget it, cancel the election. He refused because he understood that if we were going to allow that to happen, we might as well say that the, the rebellion had already conquered and defeated us. So, so the right to vote was precious, and he understood that if these freedmen, freed people, uh, that, that only the right to vote and electing their legislatures were going to give them any say or any power over, over their future, um, future lives and future conditions. Uh, it, you know, it's not often commented on, but John Wilkes Booth was among the crowd who heard Lincoln. Yes. He turns to Lewis Powell and he says, that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech you'll ever give. And while the plan and the plot to assassinate Lincoln preceded that speech, we don't think of Lincoln as a martyr to civil rights, but perhaps we should to the extent that it was his endorsement of black suffrage that, uh, that, that was the trigger that, that led Booth, Booth to act. I'm I'm so glad you brought up Lincoln's last speech, and I love that that thought of the martyr to civil rights. That you're right, like that's not a way people think of Lincoln. I I'd love to kind of get your conjecture on how much further do you think he was going to go? He's evolved so much already. If he had lived, how far do you think we would have gone toward bringing full equality to the races? Yeah. Uh... I get asked that question a lot, as you might imagine. It's, 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 it's anyone who studies history loves to pose the hypotheticals. And of course. The um, but I'm going uh, I'm to take a much more reserved sort of perspective about that. Because 
you know, there's a tendency to think, oh, you know, Lincoln would have solved all the problems. The great Lincoln, you know, would have destroyed the Civil War. But the problem of racial hatred, yeah, as we know, is a deep-seated and intractable problem. So there are lots of things that Lincoln, I think, would have done that would have eased the transition from slavery to freedom. He, he would have kept, you know, Johnson vetoes the Freedmen's Bureau. Lincoln certainly would have kept the Freedmen's Bureau going. Uh, I think we still get the 14th and 15th Amendments. Uh, those are absolutely critical and fundamental. Uh, that's what makes Reconstruction the most revolutionary is, is, is those amendments. Um, I think uh, he would have tried to find other ways to support this transition from slavery to freedom that I was talking to. But uh, unless he was willing to take much more radical action than he was willing to take, uh, I'm not sure what he could have done. You know, he didn't want treason trials. He didn't want mass arrests. He wasn't going to disfranchise Southerners. Uh, I don't know to what extent he would have been able to keep Southern Democrats from regaining political power. Uh, would he have kept more troops in the South than were kept there? You know, I don't know. And I, I, it's hard to say, you know, four years of war, over 700,000 dead, I mean, at a certain point, people in the North especially basically got tired of the question South and got tired of the question of reconstruction. I mean, Grant himself said, let us have peace, right? At a certain point, enough is enough. Uh, and, and Grant, it's worth noting, you know, Grant is now getting a lot of attention and attention, uh, particularly for his role in civil rights. I mean, you know, what, what, in rethinking his presidency, you know, he went after the Ku Klux Klan and, and tried to uh, preserve uh, black civil rights in, in the era of Reconstruction. So, uh, you know, there are some things Lincoln would have done, which clearly would have made uh, Reconstruction go more smoothly. But I think, I, I think we're engaging in a fantasy if we think that somehow had Lincoln lived, the problems of, of you know, racial hatred, the problems of, of equality, the problems of the transition from slavery to freedom would, would not have been uh, as, as problematic as, as, as they were. Yeah, I feel like there's a temptation to think of, of the past Reconstruction could have gone. Maybe the radical Republicans were like Treaty of Versailles after World War One. You know, like they wanted something really harsh. Right. And maybe Lincoln was the Marshall Plan, but probably not. It was probably something else, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's hard to say, although uh, certainly, and, and no one knew Johnson would turn out to be what Johnson right. turned out to be, uh, is, is the other thing to keep in mind. There, there, there are so many variables in thinking about Reconstruction. Uh, and, and there were some successes. I mean, in addition to those constitutional amendments, you know, education, 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 uh, and the African-American investment in education and understanding its importance, uh, they make tremendous strides in literacy rates and in schooling. You know, I mean, historically black colleges all date their origins in many cases back to the era of reconstruction. So there, there were some gains, but you know, without the redistribution of land, without keeping former slave masters and Southern Democrats from regaining political power as quickly as they can, uh, there, there was, it seems to me, no formula for, for success. Last question I'd love to ask you, and this is just a broad question about Lincoln and, and maybe kind of talked about it already. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Lincoln? <laughs> I love that question. I actually lecture all the time on Lincoln and, <laughs> and leadership. Um, I mean, there are so many lessons. There are so many lessons. Uh, lessons 
you know, I've, I've already talked about the willingness to change one's mind. Yes. Uh, which I think is a lesson, not just in leadership, but a basic lesson in humanity in terms yeah. of, in terms of going through things. Um, his, his modesty is, is really striking. Uh, of course, you know, he suffered terribly. He suffered from melancholy, uh, but developed an acute, a wonderful sense of humor, uh, an ability to tell stories. Uh, he, he, he was thoughtful and contemplative, but let, let me give you a great example. Yeah. Something really practical, something your listeners can actually take away if you want to admire him as a leader. Sounds great. Okay. So he, of course, is commander in chief. Ulysses S. Grant is going to be made lieutenant general. Uh, and Grant is uh, planning his attack upon Vicksburg, really critical control of the Mississippi River, 1863. And Lincoln thinks Grant ought to go one way. And Grant thinks he ought to go another way. Now, Lincoln is technically Grant's boss. And after Vicksburg surrenders, amazing victory, uh, the same moment as Gettysburg in the East, we have the West. Uh, Lincoln sits down to write a letter to Grant. And here's what he says. He says, my dear general, I do not remember that you and I have ever met personally, but I write this now as grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you've done for your country. And then I won't read the whole thing. He goes on to say, uh, I wish to say a word further. And he reviews the discussion that they had about the best way to attack Vicksburg. You know, one of us wanted to do the Yazoo Pass expedition. The other one went poor. Gibson goes through all of this. And here it goes. Here's where the letter ends. He says, I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. That blows me away. This is the president of the United States and the commander in chief writing a letter to one of his generals admitting that he was wrong. So if you want a lesson in leadership, I think that that's a pretty good one, right? I think that's a pretty good one. That sense of humility, that sense of modesty, that sense of willing to acknowledge that, no, you know, you're not always right. Uh, and willing to say to somebody else, you were right, I was wrong. That willingness to change your mind, to be open to other possibilities, uh, to grow. I mean, these are the qualities that certainly have kept me for, for decades now uh, <laughs> reading Lincoln and thinking about Lincoln and writing about Lincoln. Uh, and I hope will inspire, you know, many more generations of, uh, of citizens. Thank you so much for your time, Lewis. I really enjoyed this call. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to hear more from Lewis, he has a number of books out there that you can read, including most recently, Lincoln's 100 Days, The Emancipation Proclamation, and The War for the Union. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Kenny. Pleasure being with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. 
It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. Thank you again to Professor Lewis Major for joining the show. In our next episode, I'll talk to historian Kate Major, no relation to Lewis, about the history of the abolitionist movement and how Lincoln went from being wary of it to joining it and becoming the president who freed the slaves. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.